0: Let's take our Bibles in chapter 3. We've been looking at the Lord's evaluation of the church as he walks among the middle of the churches, and he tells them what is right and what is wrong. We should also take heed to these messages because These churches represent all the churches of all ages. These things can be going on in all churches at all different times in history. So the things that are pleasing to the Lord, we should continue to do. The things that are not pleasing to the Lord, we should stop doing and repent of them. So we're going going to be looking at today the church of of Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 of Revelation. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we look at the Word of God again, Lord, teach us what it says, so, Lord, we can evaluate ourselves individually and as a body. And I pray, Lord, that if there's any indication at all that we are in that position or heading in that direction, please, Lord, Grant us the repentance is needed to turn from that way and go your way. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, we would receive the promises and the blessings that come with these, these evaluations that you give. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful, we would be the overcomers that will be faithful to the end, no matter what happens. Enable us to be faithful to you in all things. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we have Jesus Christ walking among the churches. Remember, the lampstand represents a church. So here is revelation from God concerning the church. And he says that the church is like a lampstand. And what does a lampstand do best? A lampstand holds light. It holds light up. And it holds it so people can see where they're going and so the church is to hold up the light and share the light in any geographical area any church is found and when so the great mission of the church is to share the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the light of the world so you are going to see Jesus evaluate the churches If you don't bear the light, then he'll come and take the lampstand away. So Jesus gives a message to each church. The first was a warning to the Ephesian church of their declining love, a church of loveless orthodoxy. Secondly, he warned the church at Pergamum, allowing truth to slip by tolerating bad doctrine influenced by their culture. It was a church of indiscriminate tolerance The third warning was the church of Thyatira, or Thyatira, several ways to pronounce that, who was compromising with sin within the church. Thyatira was a church that became corrupt from within. There was a sickness in the church that could only be cured by true repentance, by really identifying the sin that was in that church and then forsaking that sin and then putting on righteousness. And in that case, they were putting on purity because they were hedging against the temptation and the practice of immorality by false teachers. This Lord's Day, we're going to look at and examine the fourth warning of our Lord Jesus in his church. And this warning is spiritual complacency. That is becoming apathetic or indifferent to spiritual things. Have you ever been there? Complacent to the things of God. Complacent to the word of God. Complacent to the church and the fellowship of believers. Complacent to prayer. Complacent to hearing preaching. Jesus is sovereign, the sovereign head of his church, and he walks among his people and is... Present in their midst to examine their spiritual condition to see how they're doing as We take a look at Sardis this church It's located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira According to some historians It was a place where they also were dyeing wool and uh, it was discovered that they their economy of the city was very good, which produced a lot of wealth. It also traded uh, actively with other parts of the known region around them, known for their woolen goods, for their jewelry, for their colored fabrics, and for their colored clothing. The city was geographically uh, situated in a strategic place, able to defend itself quite well as far as worship its worship its inhabitants practiced the licentious worship of Sibyl and of course the dominant religion appears to be the worship of the forces of nature the reason why some historians believe that is because there was an inscription found and in the temple that was built after the great earthquake of A.D. 17, where they began to worship the forces of nature. According to one source, Ramsey called this place the city of death because it was a city of softness and luxury, of apathy and immorality, and the church had made its peace with society becoming comfortable, there's no enemies mentioned in this book from within or without. But I say this, the enemy of comfort and complacency are enemies also. Matter of fact, they may be greater enemies than someone who actually is attacking us. So it's going to follow the same pattern, we first get the character of Jesus. Look at verse number 1 of Revelation chapter 3. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Now, this is the character of Jesus. The church was facing a thorough examination by the Lord Jesus Christ, and in this case, the church was toying with sin experiencing great amount of wealth and success in their lives and in their culture and in their city. And as a result, the clear lines of what pleased God and what did not please him were very blurred. Yet, the Lord sees clearly where it says he has seven spirits. Now, this is referring to the Holy Spirit, that is given to his church with his various powers and graces and operations that he does bestow upon the church. And even though the effect of the workings of the Holy Spirit are varied from church to church, there is a dispensation and a measure of the Spirit given to every minister and every church body so that they carry out the work of the Lord. So if the Holy Spirit is grieved as mentioned in Ephesians grieved by from Ephesians view it it's we can grieve the holy spirit by falsehood by corrupt talk by anger by an unforgiving spirit also the holy spirit can be quenched as in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 by prayerlessness, by not rejoicing, by not being thankful, by not being discerning, and a whole bunch of other things listed there. So if the Holy Spirit is grieved in or quenched a particular body of believe a particular body of believers, they' will find themselves languishing in ministry, they will find themselves becoming complacent and comfortable where they're at, and therefore when that happens, they don't desire spiritual growth anymore, they don't desire more knowledge of the Word of God or a relationship a further and deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. they kind of get stuck in the mud. So these and us are to be reminded that Christ has the seven spirits, the spirit without measure and imperfection to whom they may apply themselves for the reviving of his work among the churches. He also has in this verse the seven stars. It is also true that Jesus Christ has the seven ministers of his churches in his hand, and they are therefore accountable to their Lord Jesus Christ, which should make them faithful and zealous. His ministers are given the message and the gifts. They are to use them for the good and for the edification of the church and for the influencing of the culture by the preaching of the gospel. Again, the Lord is about to evaluate their spiritual condition. Unlike the other three churches, this has no commendations. No commendations. Now, brethren, when somebody doesn't have any good to say about you, that's a problem. And if the Lord doesn't have any good to say about you, That's really a problem. This church, there's no commendation at all. There's none. It says in verse number one, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. Now let me just stop there for a minute. Jesus The evaluator and judge doesn't commend this church for anything, and I am sure that is not a good sign. When the Lord of the church has nothing good to say, not one encouraging word, and the Lord's skillful eye can't even find the smallest grain of a good word for this church, be sure there is trouble. The church does not seem to be plagued by false teaching or under some kind of persecution or religious opposition. There are no outside threats to this church. Everything appears to be normal. And may I say this, this kind of situation is deadly to spiritual progression. It is the kind of situation which lulls people to sleep spiritually. It deadens their spiritual faculties. And yet you can still go through the motions and do everything you know you should do as a believer. And yet you're dying. In fact, maybe this is the kind of atmosphere that the Christian church has been operating in for many years it is like a church who succumbs to the dictates of a modern or postmodern and materialistic and soft society a church that depends less and less on the lord well what's the condemnation that the lord gives if there's no commendation. Well, look at verse number 3. Verse number 1, he says this, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, I know your deeds right in the middle of the verse that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. We're, We're talking about the church here. Jesus is saying to them, you are dead. So the impression of the church, though, for those looking on is that they are alive. Look what it says. And you, you have a name that you are, you are alive. So the, the, the church has a name of being alive. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, for, from a human standpoint, this church probably had a good reputation in the community. It was alive. It was active. It probably was a large church, a wealthy congregation with many programs and many activities. They probably had some good building and grounds. They had most likely good music. They could even have people there that were famous maybe for publications they put out. The atmosphere of the church was one of a draw to the culture they looked good on the outside and this is the kind of church anyone was looking for because they probably could find any help they could possibly need there and they probably would end up attending it and that would become their church home because from the outside it looked like this is the place to be there may have been exciting times there. There may be a lot of people there, a lot going on. Classes for everybody, and you would say, man, that's the kind of church I want to go to. Because if it's if it's big, it must be right. If all the activity is going on, they they must know what they're doing. But see, the problem is, is that when the culture dictates how church runs, it can run like a business, and you can have everything that everybody wants and needs in that church from the outside, but I want you to notice in verse number one what Jesus says, I know your deeds, that what you have, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Dead. That's Jesus' evaluation. That's the reality of the church. That's how he sees it. So, brethren, there is a great paradox here because what seemed real from the vantage point of a human evaluation was not the spiritual reality. According to the great physician Jesus Christ, his diagnosis was you are a spiritual corpse. You are dead. You are lifeless. You are useless. You are ineffective. I have nothing good to say about you. So you see the real spiritual condition and effectiveness of each of these churches is known by Jesus. The condition of a church is not always known by judging outward appearances or performances. In fact, you're going to find out that I didn't get to the church yet. One of the churches that had had no condemnation against them were churches under persecution. Those were churches that were being dogged by the devil and were small in number. But they knew how to worship God. They knew what not to give up. They knew what not to influence them. They knew that. So so we we need to be reminded that Jesus sees what is going on in the core of your heart, in the core of the congregation. He sees what's going on. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is concerned with the inner character of a person. He is concerned with the inner character of a church and the driving motives for everything that goes on in a particular church. And it should be, does God approve of this? Does this come from the Bible, from the Word of God? See, a church does not exist to gain the approval from the present culture or the most popular evangelical trend going on, that we should introduce all that stuff because this is the modern things we need to keep up to date. And if we don't deal with, no, we we don't, we cannot go there. I already said that in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, it says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for... Their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. See, the question we must ask is, does what we are doing or attempting to do meet with God's approval based on the word of God? See, this is how God evaluates their deeds. In verse number 2, he says this, For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. You notice the sight of God. That God is looking, he's he's watching, he sees just the way it ought to be seen. So Christ knew their deeds that came from their heart, and they were not full. They were not bringing about, one uh, interpretation is bringing about or accomplishing scripture. It's an interesting way that one could actually interpret this passage of Scripture, for I have not found your deeds bringing about Scripture in the sight of God. I have not found your deeds bringing about what God has said in the sight of God. So the deeds of this church were not fulfilling God's purposes and not measuring, measuring up to God's standards, not in line with God's Word. All you have to do is set the Bible aside for just a little while. It really doesn't take very long for corruption to come in. All that we have to do is get distracted from some good thing that someone introduces and just kind of like take a break from the Word of God and you're going to find out it happens that quick. See, that's where we don't want to go. Possibly several things could have gone wrong. They could have stopped hearing, no longer receiving the word of God, no longer uh, hearing preaching of the whole counsel of God. Maybe they were quite selective on what they spoke about. Let's, let's speak about the candy stick passages. You know, the ones that are going to make you feel good, right? And not the stuff about the wrath of God and, and, the, and the character of the anger of God and the doctrine of hell. We can't talk about hell. Oh, that's that's not good. Or maybe they were no longer doing things with a heart that loved God and loved people because they were loving their stuff. Maybe they no longer had a desire to go make disciples and teach them to be obedient to God's word. See, so when spiritual apathy and indifference begins to take root in the church, It starts to act like a spiritual cancer eating away at the inside. That the church loses its ability to fight against pagan influence and worldly viewpoints. Like being confused about sexuality. Or women that should be elders. Or a marriage is really just between a man and a woman. Or the church loses its ability to hold firmly to, to the Word of God. Well, the Word of God is it's one of many books. It's just like any other writings. It was written by men. And yeah, we think we, 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 think we like the Bible. We'll keep it. But it's never opened up. It's never expounded. It's never preached uh, as the Word of God was given. So the, church, the church's fight to win the world for Jesus fades away. And the church loses its zeal and passion to serve the Lord from the heart. And the key in our passage uh, right here is really where it says, The Lord sees. He sees in verse number two. In the sight of my God, He is looking on earth seen, and He sees your heart, He sees your deeds. How are you doing anyway? When God is looking on, how are you doing? Christian people may go to church and be involved with many activities. That's good. We ought to be involved. But if it is not done before God and to live worthy in his sight that comes from our heart, then the smell of death is already beginning to pollute the air. Thankfully, the church may recover from this condition because the Lord has given the prescription for rekindled life or someone has said the church needs fresh oil, the fresh oil of the Holy Spirit. You need an oil change, in other words. They may recover because the Lord has given the prescription to rekindle life. That may very well, some have said, be the description of the church. This is the description of the church right before the the Lord actually comes. So what counsel does the Lord give the church? Well, in all good counseling sessions, there got to be a few steps, right? There's four steps. Here's the first step. Verse number two, it says this. The first step is simply this. In verse number two of chapter three, wake up. That's not a bad counseling. That's not bad counseling. Wake up. All right, keep awake. Watch, be alert, be alive. Be roused from sleep and watchful and alert once again. There are all several other passages, scriptures in the Word of God that talk like this because the the church has to be admonished from time to time that, listen, you're getting a little sleepy spiritually. You're not interested in the things of God like you used to be interested in them. Keep your hands right there. Turn back to first Thessalonians chapter five, verse six through eight. Paul again gives the church. Now Thessalonians, first second Thessalonians probably have a, a large amount of teaching on the last or the end times, maybe more than any other book beside Revelation. But look what it says there. In First Thessalonians chapter five verse six through eight, it says, "So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet. The hope of salvation. Now again, he refers to that battle-ready mindset. He uses stuff like the breastplate of faith coming from Ephesians and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Listen, these people are battle-ready. That's why they're not falling asleep. They realize at any moment they can't really take their armor off. They can get into a battle that will take them down a road which would make them sleepy. It's just like when someone... A sentry is given a guard post, and it's out there in nowhere land. And he kind of says, well, nothing's really happening here. you know." So I think I'm just kind of like take a little nap. And then all of a sudden all the bullets start flying. He don't know where they're coming from. And maybe himself could get wounded or killed and get other people killed. Why? Because he wasn't awake. He wasn't diligent to stay awake and realize that, listen, I'm a soldier here and because I'm a soldier that a soldier can get drawn into battle at any time, at any point. In fact, here, sleep from the Greek word is used in a figurative way to mean to be indifferent, to be careless to spiritual realities. How are Christians to prepare? Well, let us not go on sleeping, let us watch instead. Let us keep awake. And it says there also in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, it says, So let us not sleep as others do. So these are the ignoble multitudes on earth that are in a profoundly deep sleep. How can we take cues from the world when they're asleep and dead? Cannot. They don't know anything of the joys to come and are obviously uh, oblivious to the evils that are happening all around them. They do not know the knowledge of God, nor do they fear God, but are blindfolded by the ignorance of the world. They also do not realize that they are standing on the brink of hell. And the anger of God burns against them because of their sin they are asleep indifferent unconscious and spiritually dead a similar passage of scripture says this no need to turn there let me just read it to you in romans chapter 13 it says do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly in the day, not in carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, in regards to its lusts, Paul tells that to Romans. So, all over the scripture in the New Testament, you find out, in the Old Testament, you find out that God's people are to remain awake spiritually. So, do you see what a contradiction it is to be asleep like this and at the same time call yourself a Christian? See, if these are asleep, they can't be alert. It's either one or the other. Either you're alert or you're asleep. See, never alert against sin and the temptations of the enemy. Never alert against themselves and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Never alert for the opportunity to do good. Never alert for Opportunities to instruct the ignorant, to uphold the weak, to comfort the afflicted, to come to the aid of those in need. Never alert for opportunities to glorify Jesus for times of communion and for times to be alert to his promises and for times to be alert for answered prayers once offered. They never watch for the second coming of Christ. They don't expect Christ to come now. See, there are many who are never alert to the spiritual realities of this life and the life to come. They are not alert because they are asleep. And I think also they have forgotten to live each and every moment before the watchful eye of God. It doesn't matter who's looking on, God's looking on. For kids, it doesn't matter if mom's looking on, dad's looking on, God's looking on. Husband and wives, it doesn't matter who's looking on, God is looking on. To live every day, getting up every day, and know that God sees it all. Can't hide a thing. That will, that will keep you awake. That will keep you awake. So in other words the admonition for the first step is let's be alert so that we prove that we are not asleep. You see, we believers are not part of the sleeping masses of those outside the faith. We are the ones who should be the most awake in the world because we know the most. We have been given the most. We see the most. We see beyond all the stupid politics that go on? It's ridiculous what's going on. You can't live there. CNN and all the other networks are ridiculous. They don't have the truth. They're just in darkness. They're just playing this chess game, and they're going to lose. Christians, We have to see beyond all that stuff. A second Step in in our passage back to Revelation chapter 3 in verse number 2. It says this, to strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. In other words, make stable the rest of those not actually dead, but are in grave danger of dying. Lest God send a spiritual earthquake to them and wake them up. So we're called to, in other words, the second step is reinforcement. We have to reinforce those who are faithful, those who are awake, and keep them awake. So the church is keeping each other awake, and we're reinforcing each other and making sure that takes place. A third step in verse number three is this, so remember, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Now, What have we received and heard that we did not have before or we did not hear before? Well, what is it? It's the Word of God, right? So in other words, get back to the Bible and receive and hear the Word of God again. Get back to taking seriously what God thinks. Run everything through the grid of Scripture and obey it and practice it and hold on to it as if it's your precious treasure. Because it is. The Word of God is a treasure. Never let it go. It is not just acquiring scriptural knowledge I'm talking about. It is much more than that. It is becoming fully convinced of the truth in your heart, in the depth of your soul. It is to hold that scripture is a reliable standard for all of faith and all of practice and all of life. In other words, the word of God is sufficient. And when you believe something, you act upon it. If you believe in a certain diet to lose weight, you will read about it, won't you? You'll study about it. You will ask people who have actually implemented the diet and ask for their advice and experience. But you'll not be satisfied just with that. You'll want to try it yourself. See, you'll not be satisfied with just the knowledge. You will want to practice it. You want it you'll want to see if it works on you. Now, if, if I say, when you firmly believe something, you will definitely act upon it. You will remain in it. You will talk about it. You will pass it on. And if you are fully convinced of the truth in your heart and in the depth of your soul, you will hold fast to it and you will not let it go. Because you know we cannot set aside scripture for novel philosophies or for scientific theories or for experimental behavior and counseling techniques, or for political correctness, and any other fads may, that may come into to be present to us at any one time. And neither can we supplement biblical teaching with entertainment and ideas from secular sources. All such things stem from a loss of confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. And those who aren't convinced the Bible is sufficient revelation of truth will continually look elsewhere for more revelation and new mystical experiences. That's what they'll do. These just deaden people who crave junk food, and it leads to spiritual complacency. Well, verse number 3, what else? Step number four, here it is again, and repent. Wow, repentance demands change. Put off your soiled garments and put on clean garments. Repentance means a change of lifestyle, a change of conduct, because attitudes and habits must be biblical. How does repentance look here? Well, it looks like this being awake and staying spiritually awake. But if the church does not wake up and accomplish these things, then the Lord will take drastic measures. If you look at verse number 3, it says this, In the middle of the verse, after he says, keep it and repent, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come to you. See, the passage of Scripture is saying to us, it's really about the second coming. It's really about living as if Christ is going to come at any moment, at any day, at any month, at any year. I don't know when he's coming, but he says he is. So I have to live like that. In fact, this is very similar to the parable in Scripture of the 10 virgins. If you remember that parable, right, that parable is really about being ready, which is to be ready is really to be wise, to be unready is to be. Foolish. What what do you want to be? Do you want to be wise or do you want to be foolish? Now, just take your Bibles for a moment and turn to Matthew chapter 25 where that parable is found. And I want, want to highlight some things for you. And I want you to notice what goes on here because this seems to be the attitude when people are spiritually complacent. It says in Matthew 25 verse 1. Through verse 13, it says, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Verse 2, five of them were foolish, and five were prudent or wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent, or the wise, took oil in flasks along with their lamps. In verse 5, now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Verse 6, and at midnight there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. In verse number 8, the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Verse number 9, but the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us, and you too go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. Verse number 10, and while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Verse 11, later the other versions also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered in verse 12, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then here's the point, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. In other words, just stay ready. Don't get complacent. The admonition is be ready, be watchful, be laboring. The scriptural admonition for us Christians is to be forever watchful. I pray that this teaching from the Word of God will make you watchful, will make you ready to meet the Lord at any time. And while you are waiting to meet Him, you will be laboring diligently on his behalf until he comes. So that is that is the counsel that the Lord gives them. He gives them the counsel in those steps. He says, first of all, revive, secondly, reinforce, thirdly, remember, fourthly, repent. And then what does he tell those who did not get complacent? Well, he has a challenge for them. And if you notice back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, here's the challenge. Now Christ gives specific notice and assurance to a small faithful group that stayed morally pure who kept a hold on God's word and did not fall asleep or become indifferent or from sp- uh, of spiritual truth. And how many were they there? Well, they were just a few people. The few, the proud, the Marines. <laughs> Do you know today's the Marine Corps birthday, November 10th, 244 years. All right, that's beside the point. <laughs> but look at what it says in verse number 4. But you have a few people, just a few, in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Believe me, brethren, this is very encouraging. That means when everybody drops off, and you had this line of people following you, and then you look back, and there's just you know, there's no longer a multitude, there's just a few. What are you going to do then? Are you just throw your hands up in the air, said so I didn't really believe it anyway, or are you just gonna keep going forward and just be part of the few? Are you willing to be part of the few, not the multitudes, not the great crowds? All right, well, look what happened in John chapter six when the great crowds were following Jesus, right? because he was feeding them and he was performing miracles. And then all of a sudden he preached the gospel right straight and they all left, except 12 guys. And Jesus said to the 12 guys, are you going to leave too? And this is what they said to him, Lord, how can we leave? You have the words of eternal life. See, that's where you have to be. That's why conviction of the word of God is so important that I'm willing to stand alone if it, if it takes that, because I know God is true, I know his word is true, and I know everything he says he will complete. I know that, even if I'm alone. So the Lord gives three promises. I want you to see them. In verse 4 and verse number 5, the first promise is, points to the genuineness of those who hold fast and remain awake and ready for the Lord's return. Look what it says in verse number 4, the middle of the verse, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Now, what is this thing about white garments? See, the white of these garments symbolize the purity that comes when one has been washed in Christ's blood. Only those who have allowed Christ to cleanse them from their sins will be clothed in white. See, the Lord will give you clothing that will show that you're genuine. You find in Scripture that you find people wearing white clothing all the time, right? And why that white clo- clothing represents being purified by God in the receiving of the gospel of Jesus Christ where your sins are washed away and all you're left with is purity you're left with the righteousness of Christ he says that's the first promise i'm going to give you clothing that represents you're a genuine follower of Christ secondly in verse number five the second promise points to the security of those who hold fast and remain awake and ready for the Lord's return verse verse 5 of chapter 3 in the middle of the verse and I will not erase his name from the book of life wow see God God's divine register the book of life refers to the heavenly registry of those who have received salvation in Christ now either you're on that registry or you are not got that, right? In fact, that registry will give you entry into the kingdom of God. See, this book actually symbolizes God's knowledge of those who belong to him. Cities used to have registries, and only those whose names were recorded were considered citizens and allowed permanent indwelling there. Now, remember, this church had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. Jesus is going to make sure that your name, because you are alive, is in the book of life. Now, some have suggested, before I go any further, In Christ's statement here, that he will never erase certain names, which opens the possibility that he might erase some names, maybe and may imply that people lose their salvation. That is not the case here. In other words, can a name be written in the book and then later erased? That would be shaky to base one's theology of salvation in that symbol. So it's best to take Christ's statement at face value in the context in which he means this, that those who remain faithful to, to him and our promised future honor and eternal life, they are guaranteed citizens in heaven. And God knows who they are. And in this case, it's the few people that didn't give up. And it's those who possibly repented. Now, in the book of Revelation, there are two books when we get to Revelation chapter 22. There's the book of man's works or deeds in which people are going to be judged according to the records that God has about their life. The great white throne judgment is about unbelievers who now are resurrected and brought before God, and God opens up his books. He has accurate records about people's lives, and he judges them because God's a fair judge. If you lived, uh, somebody can live an ultra-wicked life on this earth, and somebody can live what we would call a decent life on this earth, but they're both sinners, they both didn't trust Christ, one's going to get a worse penalty than the other one because of God's books and his books of their deeds were opened. How they lived their life were opened. Now, the great white throne judgment is not for believers. It's for unbelievers. The Bemasi judgment is for believers. Believers are also judged for their works after conversion. So see, being complacent is not a good place to be if God's going to judge us by our works. But there is another book which I want you to look at in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Notice what, this is the book of life. In 22, verse 12, it says, 20, verse 12, right. 20, verse number 12. It says, and the books were open. And another book was open. Which is the book of life. Now, a record of the names are in that book, not the deeds. The book of life only comes into the discussion only to show that the names of these dead are not written there. Now, just keep there for a minute. We're going to look at a couple other passages in Revelation, but back to Revelation chapter 3 verse 5. Just listen what it says there. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Now that's a promise that the Lord gives that your name is indelibly printed there, cannot be washed out, cannot be removed, cannot be erased. So that means that genuine citizens of the kingdom of God who wear white robes have their names in the permanent registry. So they don't have to come before this judgment and revelation. They don't have to come there because it's already been taken care of. Now, if you look right there back to chapter 13 of Revelation, verse number 8, so the first thing would be this. All right, this book contains the names of all who have true spiritual life. Secondly, in Revelation 13, verse number 8, it is a book that uniquely belongs to the Lamb of God and is related to his death. Notice what it says in verse number 8 of Revelation 13. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written, from the foundation of the world in the book of book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now, of course, when you look at a passage of Scripture like that, you have to ask this question in a verse number 8, is that it says all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Worship who? Well, if you go up, and if you notice verse number Four of Revelation 13. It says they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, "Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him?" There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him, that's three and a half years, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme the name of his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And verse number 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast, the Antichrist the one who's energized by satan and notice what it says there whose name has not been written in the f- uh, written from the foundation of the, of the world in the book of the life of the of the life of the lamb who has been slain so in other words there are going to be some there whose names are not in the book because they did not worship the true and living god and then Revelation 21, verse 27. So, it is a book that uniquely belongs to the Lamb of God and is related to his death. It contains the names of all who have true spiritual life. And then, thirdly, your name must be written in this book in order for you to enter the heavenly city. Look at verse 27 of Revelation 21. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the question would be, is your name there? Young people, is your name there yet? Why not? If we're living in light of Christ's return, the message of the gospel should lay heavy upon your heart to know that, listen, if my name is not in this registry, I am not getting in. I will not receive a white robe that shows that I have the purity that comes because of my relationship and my belief in Christ Jesus and his righteousness upon my account, I cannot get in. Nothing can get into the kingdom of God because sin is locked out forever. The curse is locked out forever. There is nothing but the purity of God where righteousness dwells in Christ's kingdom, and nothing will be able to get in. As in the ancient world, it is built on the role of citizens in the city or nation. Those written in it are citizens of heaven and God's special people. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they went out? And they were casting out demons, and they were preaching the word of God, and people were getting saved, and all kinds of great things were happening. What did Jesus tell the disciples when they came back, and they were kind of like awed by what just took place? This is what Jesus said to them in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Amen? See, that's where we need to rejoice. But you've got to make sure your name's there. And if somebody is complacent, they may not even know if they're a believer. And if they don't ever repent of their complacency, I guarantee they're not one. See, believers are awake. They're aware. They're in tune to God. They hunger for righteousness they want to deal with their sin they want to lift up the name of Christ and worship him that's what drives them that's what wakes us up in the morning every day and gets us going see that's what a believer is and that god puts all that stuff in our heart sins forgiven your name written down in heaven, a possessor of eternal life, a partaker of the divine nature, born of God, passed out of condemnation into everlasting life. Oh, what how blessed it is to be saved and to know it and to know your name's there. To be delivered from the wrath of God and know it. So if you are in Christ, then your name will remain indelibly recorded in God's book, in God's registry forever. Amen? I don't know about you, but that, this gets my blood going. This is reaches down to your gizzard, and it squeezes. That's theology. That's what theology does. It excites us. It shows us the real deal. This is the truth. And this is what a real believer wants in their heart. They're not perfect. We fall. We stumble. We sin, but we don't want to remain there. We want to get up. We want to repent. And we want to we want to serve the Lord. But I, I didn't give you the last promise. In Revelation chapter 3, verse number 5, the third promise points to the acceptance of before God of those who hold fast and remain awake and ready for the Lord's return. Look what it says in the end of verse number five. It says, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Brethren, it's the Christ will announce to the host of heaven that these belong to me. Father, these are the ones you gave me before the foundation of the world. These are the ones, when the gospel was preached, believed in me. Lord, these are mine. And because they are mine, I want to confess his name before my father and before his obedient angels. Angels are probably unfallen angels are the, probably the most obedient creatures in the universe and they minister before the throne of God and do God's bidding and it says in hebrews that the angels look on the the, the church i wonder if they get discouraged too once in a while see what's going on so believers can have no greater reward than to stand in heaven with Christ And have him announce your name? Man, if you can't hold on to that promise, I I don't know. I can't help you. But if you can, then this is how it ends in verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The Spirit says to the churches. And who are those who have ears to hear? God's faithful ones. That few group of people that listen to God's voice. And that means that all the other voices vying for their attention are, are muted. And the voice of God becomes loud where I don't even hear the rest of it. See, that's where you want to live. So you live before the eyes of God and you have your ears opened to the word of God. And then, of course... Your will is changed because of what you're hearing, so you put the word of God into practice. So be warned this morning of spiritual complacency, of just going through the motions and not really having a heart for what you're doing, of really not living before the eyes of God, just living before the the desires of your own heart, whatever you want. So be warned of spiritual deadness and be revived by following the Lord's prescription. Today you may need to repent. Today you may need to come and trust Christ as your Lord and Savior because you realize my name's not there in that registry and you're not guaranteed tomorrow, so today may be the day of salvation for you. If you need to talk to me about that, I am willing to share with you. And so is anybody who went to the evangelism table and anybody else who is willing to share with you if you don't know Christ. Today is the day you need to trust Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. Lord, it it is, the word of God, Lord, it, it, it twists us. It challenges us. It convicts us. And yet, Lord, it heals us. It establishes us. It affirms our foundation. It affirms the promises of God for us to know who we are and where we're going and to know your plan of coming back again and until then we are to serve you. I pray, Lord, make us faithful in these things. Lord, keep us from this attitude of complacency that you say just brings someone into a dead state. So Lord, if we need this morning to examine ourselves and repent, let us take the word of God and do that. To those who don't know you today, I pray you would bring them to a place where they trust you as their Lord and Savior and not put it off one second. And I pray, Lord, for those who who are the faithful few, I pray, Lord, the promises you have in this text, they just hold on to tight and that you would encourage them every day by it, knowing that their genuineness is seen in their white robes because they're washed with the blood of Christ. Their names are written in the registry of God so they are citizens of heaven. And, Lord, that you're going to acknowledge them before the Father and and his angels in heaven someday because they are your children, and they are your possession, and you love them, and they love you. And I pray this, Lord, for us today, that you would encourage us today and every day with the truth of Scripture, and I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time now and forever amen see you next week